Welcome to Faith and to our message series in the epistle to Timothy from Paul, the first letter of Timothy. We're working our way through the, uh, these letters to Timothy, uh, which Paul sent to Ephesus in order to encourage the church there and to charge them to live and to conduct themselves as God's household, the embodied temple of his spirit, uh, the pillar of truth. Uh, and he talks about the fight. He talks about uh, that he calls them to the good fight. And what we find is that he reveals in these letters the character and the practices of a, uh, what makes a healthy church and what makes healthy leaders. Now, as I think about the text today, uh, I think about Paul's words to the Corinthians and where he said he came to them in weakness and fear and with much trembling as he proclaimed the gospel, uh, even as he resolved to focus on Christ and him crucified. Uh, likewise, he tells timid Timothy to be strong in the grace. And I appreciate those encouragements and those words because the passage that I will be addressing today is one of those for, that a teacher said was at the top of the topics that provoked outrage, tears, shouting, and disappointment. And we're talking about gender roles in the church. And so I think this would fall in the passage that Peter talks about in 2 Peter 3, where he mentions in Paul's letters, his letters contain some things that are hard to understand. <laughs> uh, but context is important. And, uh, and so as we look at this passage, I want to begin reading with where uh, Stan was preaching last week so we can understand the context more clearly, starting with verse 1 of chapter 2. First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am, not, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with, a, with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works." Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is the word of the Lord. Rodney Stark, a professor of sociology and of comparative religion, notes the significant role of women in the growth of Christianity. 
In his book on the rise of Christianity, how the obscure marginal Jesus movement became the dominant religious force in the Western world in a few centuries, he says this, Amidst contemporary denunciations of Christianity as patriarchal and sexist, it is easily forgotten that the early church was so especially attractive to women that in 370, the emperor Valentinian issued a written order to Pope Damasus I requiring that Christian missionaries cease calling at homes of pagan women. Stark said, most recognize that Christianity was unusually appealing because within the Christian subculture, women enjoyed far higher status than did women in the Greco-Roman world at large. And Stark outlines how in the Greco-Roman world, men greatly outnumbered women, mainly due to female infanticide, as well as treating women as property or children uh, or divorcing why oh, I'm sorry infanticide which is basically the uh, discarding of female babies uh, female babies or drowning uh, them upon birth which was large, largely a practice of all social classes but the Christian community condemned female infanticide as well as treating women as property or children or treating them as children or divorcing, uh, divorcing wives at will, condemning infidelity, holding men to the same standards of chastity, condemning polygamy and, uh, and rejected and discouraged prepubescent girls to get married, which was a common practice. They would, girls would get married before they were at the age of 12. But in the Christian community, women were protected and honored, esteemed and held prominent roles in the church. And he quotes Wayne Meeks in his work on the first urban Christians. Women are Paul's fellow workers as evangelists and teachers, both in terms of their position in the larger society and in terms of their participation in the Christian communities. Then a number of women broke through the normal expectation of female roles. And so the Apostle Paul tells Timothy for the church to pray and to pray for the leaders and for all of those in authority that believers might live peaceful, quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Why? Because the passion of God, who Paul calls our Savior, is that he wants all men and he wants all women to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And he says, there is one God and one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And so Paul is calling the church of Ephesus to be a praying church, to be a praying church in worship, to be a Christ-witnessing, gospel-advancing church. And this is the big idea. In this text, this is the big idea. And he is calling the Ephesian church to practice such prayer and worship in a way that exalts and attracts people to knowing Christ as Savior. It's important that we do not miss this big idea and calling in this chapter as we attempt to unpack some of the more challenging and confusing texts around some distinctives of men and women in worship. So the main thing here is that Paul is calling both men and women to gospel-advancing worship. And uh, he calls, I believe, 
men to pray in gospel-centered humility. He caused women to pray in Christ-centered modesty. And he caused men and women to worship in Christ-centered partnership. This is the big picture. This is the big calling that people would see and experience Christ in our worship as we interact as brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, uh, Dr. Rebecca Eklund, she's a worshiper at Faith, and she's the assistant professor of theology at Loyola University. I have a huge respect for her, not only for her Christian character, but also for her scholarship. And uh, I met with, recently with her to talk about this passage because I know that we have different perspectives of what the scriptures teach about this subject. And uh, it would basically be, in the Christian world, in a simple way, you either have a view that you believe that in the gospel there are no role distinctions now, that in Christ uh, women and men and all the distinctions, the roles are, are, have been discarded, and that all men and women are available for, for all offices in the church. That's called the egalitarian position, equal. And then the complementarian position would be that uh, there's a perspective that the scriptures teach that uh, offices are held for just, or the eldership is held for just, qualified, ordained men, which is the position of this church, which in this culture is a rather unpopular position. So I, I met with uh, Rebecca, and I asked her, I said, you know, you've been coming to faith, and we have these different views, uh, and it's clear that you don't see this as a deal-breaker for being in our church. I said, but I just needed to know, why did you, you know, come, and why do you keep coming back? And she said that when she came to Baltimore, she visited many churches, and she would often, like, sit in the church, uh, churches and walk out, and no one would mention anything to her. No one would talk to her, or greet her, or welcome her. Or, and so she, a friend asked her to come to faith, and she came, and she said, people were very friendly. They came up to me. They asked me who I was. Uh, they asked me things about myself, what I did, and... and uh, and uh, very welcoming, very hospitable, and she says, maybe it was a fluke, and, uh, but she decided that she'd come back the next week, but lo and behold, people were very engaged with her and caring, and, and so she said, what I found out about this church is that the people really love Jesus, and that they love the city, uh, and they also are committed to racial reconciliation, which she holds a high value of, uh, Rebecca has, uh, is part of uh, a, covenant, a community group. Anada, an elder, is leading, and she feels cared for and participates. She teaches in classes that we have, and she has been a huge encouragement in this body. And I just want to say that what, when I heard those words from her, uh, my heart was full of uh, joy and honor in being a pastor here. Uh, and so I want to just say thank you. Thank you, body, for being a welcoming, hospitable, reconciling, loving Jesus, loving the city kind of church that attracts people to Jesus. Um, but as we approach this most controversial verses in Paul's letters, it will be important for you to know something about the hermeneutical approach or the principles of interpretation that we will use to help us to understand what I believe uh, Paul is trying to say here 
not only to the people of that day, but also to us as well. John Stott reinforces uh, certain principles of this discipline. He says the first principle of interpretation is what is called the principle of harmony. Harmony. Believing that, the, that God is the author of the Bible, that he does not contradict himself, that we expect this, it to pos- possess an underlying consistency, a natural harmonization. So we interpret each text within the total biblical text. If we think that something is contradicting, uh, we, we can't just dismiss it. We have to figure out what is it that God is actually saying. In this case, it would be wrong for us to read or interpret the text about the role of women without taking into account the rest of the scriptures, which present a fundamental assertion of their equal value and dignity with men as divine image bearers. Therefore, every notion of any gender superiority or inferiority is ruled out from the start. But secondly, we must seek to apply the, what's called the principles of history, that God always spoke his word in particular historical and cultural settings. In the Near East, in the Old, was in the Old Testament, the Near East, ancient Near East setting. Palestine, Judaism was uh, in the context of the Gospels. The Greco-Roman world was Acts and Paul. No word of God was spoken in a cultural vacuum. And so every word was spoken in culture. The divine word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. So God, he invades, he condescends, and he speaks into our world. But the challenge for us as believers and as Bible teachers is to be able to understand what is uh, universal and normative, what uh, transcends cultures and applies to all cultures, and what is culturally specific or local, transient and changeable. That is our challenge, and you need to know that godly believers and scholars have different perspectives on this passage, and so we need to be careful to guard our unity with our differences. With this framework, uh, some would also say there are those who would take a uh, literalism to this, which enthrones and makes the eternal and authoritative and the cultural forms expressed by it. For instance, it says they would say it belongs to the Word of God and is not to be tampered with. Some would call this rigid literalism. So in our passage today, they would read the passage and say, men must always lift up their hands when they pray, or that women must never plait their hair, wear pigtails or jewelry, and under no circumstances should women teach ever teach men, and that would be sinful in their perspective. And other, the other extreme, would, we would consider liberalism, which dethrones or dismisses both scripture and cultural forms. Such scriptures and cultural forms, like our text, were only spoken to people long ago. They're totally out of date and irrelevant. Nothing is eternal. All is cultural. We have evolved to a more mature place. One commentator says of this passage, All the things in this chapter are mere temporary regulations to meet a given situation. So that's the, that's the context. As we look at this hard passage, how we view those things and how we apply the scriptures is important. Harmony and history. Well, let's dive in. Paul calls men to Christ-honoring or Christ-centered humility. He says, I desire then that 
In every place, the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, Paul opens this chapter calling the whole church to be people who pray. Pray for those in authority. But so, in the second part of the chapter, he focuses on the appropriate behavior of men. Whenever the church assembles for worship, here he specifically calls men to be men of character in their worship and public prayer. He reminds them of the hindrances to the gospel if their prayer is full of anger or quarreling. Not just their prayers, but really their lives. And anger, this is not just about uh, righteous anger over injustices. Here he's talking about destructive anger, impulses towards violence, a passion towards punishment, losing one's temper, or quarreling, arguing, debating in a deconstructive way. And, you know, Paul then goes into the qualifications of the elder in the next chapter, and he talks about some qualifications. They should not be violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a striker, a bruiser, ready for a blow, but they should be patient, not contentious. You know, at this first reading, I was thinking, okay, how is it that men are praying with anger and quarreling (laughs) at the same time? Well, He's really talking about the character of the person. That He's asking that these men be men of humility and repentance. That what you bring into worship is consistent with the rest of the week. You know, this is uh, reminiscent of David's in David's uh, in Psalm 24. He says, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his Soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God, his Savior. So what we find here is that God-honoring worship, Christ-centered worship, is coming to God in a humble posture. Now, you know, lifting up holy hands can be one posture for prayer. But the scriptures also tell us other appropriate postures, like David sat before the Lord. Sometimes he's bowing down, sometimes kneeling, sometimes falling on our faces or laying prostrate are all expressions of postures of prayers. Sometimes walking and talking with God like Enoch, who walked with God or traversed with God in the garden. The normative thing that Paul is getting here is that he's calling for men, worshiping men to be men of character, of holiness, of love and peace. But now he calls women to pray in Christ-centered modesty. He uses the word likewise. Likewise. Paul continues this thought on prayer from how men should pray in worship to how women should pray in worship. He says, in like manner, there's one commentator that says that the word order Paul uses assumes women's prayer in the word. Likewise and proceeds to describe how women should dress when they are praying with modesty, self-control, and with godly character that produces good works. He, he goes on, he says, Whenever the case may be, whatever the case may be, as to women praying, it is clear that the main goal of the instruction is not to command the act of prayer that's already given, but the demeanor of both men and women while praying and worshiping. Now, when you hear an instruction about women praying publicly in worship, it might not seem radical in our day. 
But when you compare it to the time of the synagogue service in that time, uh, James Hurley shows how radical it is for a woman in a worship service to be publicly praying. Uh, He says this, he says, In the synagogue service, women could attend like slaves or minors like children, but were ushered to separate sections or balconies away from the men, and their part was strictly receptive. They were to be silent. They could not read the scriptures. They could not pray publicly. So when you hear these verses in the scriptures about women praying with men, like when we find in Acts 114, it says they all joined, the disciples joined constantly in prayer with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Or when Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, every woman who prays and prophesies, he's, these are radical, kingdom-breaking activities of women that were not practiced historically in the worship of God's people Paul here is talking about women in worship, women praying in worship, and he, he and is calling uh, them to guard their witness of Christ in worship, to be Christ-centered and not with inordinate, expensive clothes or appearance-centered. Paul is not talking or condemning all hairdos or braids or gold wedding bands or jewelry or nice clothes. He's talking about inordinate, excessive attention. Apparently, this was an issue in Paul's time. There were... In Ephesus and other places, they talked about this elaborate ends to attract attention. James Hurley says, to the elaborate hairstyles, which were then fashionable among the wealthy, and also the styles worn by courtesans. Uh, The sculpture and literature of the period makes it clear that women often wore their hair in enormously elaborate arrangements with braids and curls interwoven, piled high with towers, and decorated with gems and or gold or pearls, pearls, gems every inch or so, making a shimmering screen of their locks. And there was a Roman poet by name of uh, Juvenal. Uh, he wrote in a satire, the attendance of a woman will vote on the dressing of her hair as if a question of reputation or of life were at stake. So great is the trouble she takes in quest of beauty with so many tears does she lead with so many continuous stories? Does she build up high her head? <laughs> and so this was the cultural context that Paul is addressing here. And he's saying, this isn't really helping people to focus on Jesus. This is not helping people to worship. And, and Eugene Peterson, I like his paraphrase here. He says, I want women to get in there with the men in humility before God. Not obsessive primping before a mirror or chasing the latest fashions, but doing something beautiful for God and becoming beautiful doing it. Uh, I think that's a helpful paraphrase. But finally, Paul calls men and women to worship in Christ-centered partnership. We've already read these verses once, but I must say that the wounds from the misuse and misinterpretation and application of this passage are deep. Taken out of context, of the harmony and the history of the scriptures, or isolating them by itself does great harm and has done great damage to our sisters. Yet in their context, with harmony and the history of scriptures, I believe that there is teaching here that is true and good and beautiful. James Hurley 
says this as he speaks about this passage. He says, My conclusions will not please everyone, but it is my hope, however, that none will feel the, that violence has been done to the text of Scripture. And that is my prayer as we talk about this. But before we try to get at what Paul might be saying, we need to think about the larger context of Scripture where he speaks about the participation both in word and deed of women in the church. Uh, There's been a paper written, a research paper, that was produced by both leading men and leading women in our uh, denomination, the PCA Report on Women Serving in the Ministry. Uh, I have out in the foyer uh, a handout that has the website for that 52-page paper and just a a pastoral uh, one-page response. But in that paper, it says, Women are invaluable assets to Christ's church, from Huldah the prophetess in 2 Kings to Mary the Theotokos, which is the mother of God in Luke 2, and Phoebe, a diaconess, a co-laborer of the Apostle Paul. And Romans 16, their ministries are breathed into holy writ as examples of faithful service to God and his people. Paul praised women for their assistance as he planted churches, Judea and Syntyche contended at Paul's side in the cause of the gospel. He lauded Mary, praised Junius as outstanding among the apostles. Tryphena and Tryphosa and Persis were commended who worked hard in the Lord. Paul commended women and noted their prophetic ability during church services in 1 Corinthians 11. The point is that women were not just serving with good deeds, but they were serving with gospel words speaking and teaching gospel truths. Priscilla, with her husband Aquila, explained and instructed deficient Apollos in the way of God more adequately in Acts 18. And with Priscilla's name being first mentioned, it is presumed that she held a pro- was a pr- the more prominent teacher. When the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, Peter says that this was the fulfillment of the kingdom of God breaking in. And he quoted Joel 2, in the last days God says, I will pour out my spirit on people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on your servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Acts 2, or that's from Acts 2, but in 1 Corinthians 2, it places the gift of prophecy above the gift of teaching. Now, Ann Malio, uh, who is the chairperson chairwoman of our Christian Education Committee, uh, she did a class on men and women in ministry and, uh, and the, the various roles that they exercised in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So these are just a list of women from Miriam to Deborah to Ruth to Naomi and Hannah, Abigail, uh, Huldah and Esther uh, in the Old Testament and the positions of leadership and prophetic word and wisdom and exhortation and service and mercy that they executed. And then in the New Testament, you see uh, Mary and Martha and Dorcas and Lydia and Priscilla and Philip's daughters uh, who were uh, uh, prophetesses. And so we see in the scriptures uh, the affirmation of women in these particular roles that were very significant and prominent. And so with these realities of women's prominence and participation in the rest of the scriptures, what could Paul possibly mean? In the PCA report, it says about these verses of Paul, it both liberates and restrains. 
First century Greek and Jewish cultures generally considered women mentally inferior. They judged women's education as a waste of time at best and a cause of temptation at worst. The mission advised men not to talk with women frequently lest they bring evil upon themselves, neglect the law, and inherit damnation. Paul believed otherwise. Paul believed otherwise. He did not rank the capabilities of one soul based on gender. Paul rightly understood that women were image bearers of God and they should learn and be taught. When Paul says women should learn, that was a radical cultural departure of the day. So women were esteemed image bearers. They should learn, and all the rest of the scriptures tell us of their prominent participation in the service, speaking, instruction, and prophesying. So what then was Paul restraining here? Well, some scholars suggest this, that Paul is giving his personal opinion, that it is not authoritative, like, personally, I don't allow, which lacks any sense of universal imperative. Or Paul is directing his instructions not only against noisy disturbances and interruptions, or that Paul is correcting those women who were domineering over, the, over usurping authority, alluding to the prominence of the priestesses from the temple of Diana and Ephesus who exercised spiritual authority in that cult. We don't have time to go into all the responses to these, but all these would, all these would put these instructions to Paul as only culturally specific. Kathy Keller, Kathy Keller's co-founder of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, who herself was on her way for ordination. She came to adopt the view that men and women have different roles in marriage and ministry that she considers a gift for our good. And she says in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, she says, what is being forbidden to women in 1 Timothy 2, and by extension in 1 Corinthians 14, is authoritative teaching, some kind of teaching that carried with it authority not found in other allowable forms of oral discourse. This was already linked in 1 Corinthians 14 with the judging of the prophets and is followed immediately in 1 Timothy 3 by a discussion of the qualifications of elders. And she says this, I find it not only plausible but unavoidable to come to the conclusion that women were being enjoined to silence that is forbidden to participate in the function reserved for elders, those men tasked with judging personal and corporate faithfulness to the apostolic deposit of truth. And she continues, she says, the teaching is called authoritative for two reasons. First, it was the final judgment of truth versus heresy. Second, it came with the power of discipline that is the power to remove from the church body anyone who taught in defiance of the approved apostolic oral tradition. So Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to do this correction and to lead the correction of the false teachers. Keller asks, where does this leave us regarding the role of women? And she quotes James Hurley, The passage does not in any way stand in opposition to 1 Corinthians 11, which specifically presumes that women will speak and to pray and to prophesy in the church, nor is it in conflict with the teaching of the chapters 12 to 14, which assume that the various members of the body of Christ will all participate in corporate meetings. Paul, therefore, affirms the use of speaking, teaching, prophesying gifts, and other forms of critical service along with public prayer and worship. What Paul appears to be ordering is a kind of teaching authority or spiritual oversight that is reserved for not just any man, but for those called 
to be elders, elected by God's people, which, which he provides qualifications and guidelines in the next chapter. It's important to note that there is nothing in the scriptures that says that such men are smarter or wiser or more gifted in teaching or spiritually or morally superior in any way. Paul angers it only in the order of creation. He says, the reason is for Adam was formed first, then Eve. When he talks about that Adam was not the one deceived, but, was, but it was the woman, he is not letting Adam off the hook. Eve may be deceived, but Adam was responsible. As Romans 5 and Corinthians 15 says, because he failed his role as covenant keeper and federal head. Eve was deceived, but Adam disobeyed an explicit command. His was high-handed sin. And it's always in the scripture that, Paul, that, that, the, that Adam was the source of the fall. If anything, the fall tells us that men tend toward to be the more morally weaker and spiritually passive. You know, uh, there was uh, Elizabeth Elliot, Christian author, speaker, teacher, former missionary to the Aka people uh, with her husband who was a martyr there, said in the class, she's teaching to, uh, on roles with a particular reference to gender roles, and she's talking to men. She's talking to emerging pastors, and she says this, I would be a better pastor than most of you. I have better gifts of speaking and counseling. And this is not a brag. She just, this is just a fact. I have more self-discipline and maturity, and I'm probably more motivated, etc. However, God did not call me to use my gifts in the role of a pastor, so they would be flawed if that's how I chose to use them. I submit my gifts. He's given me to back to him and let him determine how I should use them. And if you know anything of Elizabeth Elliot and the power of her testimony and her teaching and her, her gifts, it's been a huge impact for the kingdom. So much of my own personal spiritual life and formation has been from Johnny Erickson Tada, who became a quadriplegic when she dove into the Chesapeake Bay when she was 18 years old. Johnny Erickson, yeah, this is kind of a dorky picture of me, but I'm about 16 in this picture. She was my young life leader. And uh, she's had a profound impact on my spiritual formation. Um, I remember going to a Ligonier conference. This was a conference on theology uh, for leaders and stuff. And she was one of the keynote speakers. And, and a guy named R.C. Sproul was there, John Piper, and a bunch of other very famous people. And she, was, uh, she came up to the platform uh, in her wheelchair, and uh, as she, she got ready to speak, she says, I stand here, or I sit here, speaking under the covering of my elders. And then she spoke. And hands down, in my mind, she was the best speaker, preacher, teacher that was at that conference. My life and so many other lives have, around the world have been, would have been impoverished without the use of her gifts. Kathy Keller says women should have the fullest possible use of their gifts and access to ministry in every area, save the one that we can tell that the scriptures said is clearly not open to women. The issue is, in my mind, not so much this particular theology, but all 
but it's the applications and how often we fall short, particularly those of us who hold a complementarian position. Uh, the big issue is, are we presenting Jesus in our lives across the gender divides, and, and how is Jesus being presented in our ministry? Uh, renowned English writer Dorothy Sayers says, perhaps it is no wonder that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made such arch jokes about them, never treated them either as the woman, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without quarrelsomeness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. She, I think, paints the picture of our Lord and why he was so attractive to women and what was so powerful about the movement of the gospel. The challenge and responsibility for us who claim this complementarian view of gender roles in the scriptures is how do we, re we reveal this practice and this character of Jesus and encourage a robust and gracious practice that fully affirms and supports and encourages and empowers our esteemed and gifted sisters in the fulfillment of their callings for the advancement of the kingdom. I think for me, probably the first thing is my calling is to repentance. <laughs> uh, so after I was like studying this, uh, it was late at night, and Maria was already went to bed. But I, as I, as I uh, met her there, I just asked her a question. I said, "Do you see our relationship and our marriage as hierarchical?" And she says, "I wouldn't use that term." She says, but I would say, like, particularly in the early years of our marriage, you know, in the church planting and stuff, she says, I would probably say it wasn't, there wasn't parity. That is, that um, I was consumed and absorbed 70-plus hours a week or whatever in the planting of the church, and she says, everything was kind of focused on the affirmation and the development of your gifts I was home with the kids, which is an important and godly and proper thing, but, it, but there was an imbalance. There was a disorder that had happened. She said, she says, sometimes it was like uh, Cinderella, you know? If I worked hard enough, I might get to go to the ball. Uh, and uh, so this is kind of pillow talk, huh? <laughs> right? So uh, she says, you know, it's, you know, who's the better dancer, uh, Fred Astaire or Ginger Rogers? And uh, she says, Ginger Rogers does everything Fred Astaire does except backwards and in high heels. <laughs> Anyhow, when I went to, uh, to, to a publisher uh, with Maria on her first book, uh, the man said to me, you really married up, didn't you? <laughs> I did. I married way up. Uh, if there's any 
strength of my pastoral ministry over these years uh, for the help of this church, it's because God has given me an amazing wife in, my, in Maria. And uh, she has been an anchor and support. She's amazingly gifted, and I would consider her the co-founder of Faith Christian Fellowship. And so, uh, yeah, she, she's not here. <laughs> she was here at the first service, so thank you for that affirmation. You know, uh, when we look at this table that Christ calls us to, that he instituted, it's an interesting thing to me that when he instituted the Lord's table, he instituted it in a context of injustice in the church. When he instituted this table, uh, there were class divisions, and the rich were going ahead, and they were having their banquets, and they were humiliating the poor in their midst. And Paul says, this is not the Lord's Supper that you're partaking. The instructions that we have about the Lord's Supper revolve around the correction of injustices. And so as we come to this table, we come really with a call to repentance in our own life. Where are things out of order in our relationships? And how can we come to this table uh, seeking humble repentance? Uh, this table is not for perfect people. It's for sinners. And so if you're a sinner and you've come and you're coming here seeking transparency before your God and you've asked Jesus to save you from your sins and you're seeking to walk in repentance in his church, and he welcomes you to this table like they ask the officers to please come forward. So that on the night that Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took the bread and he broke it, and he said, this is my body which is for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we uh, come to this table, we thank you that you love us in spite of all of our mess that you love us in spite of our rebel hearts and the things that we don't even see that we do that are wrong. God, we pray that you would strengthen us and heal us, that you would reconcile us, that you would do a great work of grace through us and through your word and through this meal. And we commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, eat in remembrance of me.